Last time on Video Night. I want balls. Hey. My life has meaning now. And now. Video Night. Hey everybody, welcome to Video Night. I'm gonna kinda guide this episode this time. I'm taking control away from Andrew. Yes. My power will never be stopped! Yes, over the <laughs> summer I think I've been the guide, so take it away this fall. What are we talking about? Okay, so if anybody pays attention to what goes on at the other podcasts of Retro Rocket Entertainment, there's one called Comics on Infinite Earths. It's very difficult to get an episode together for some reason, so we were going to do a 30 years of Dark Horse Comics conversation. Everybody I talked to is like, eh, I've read The Goon, and mm, a couple Star Wars. <laughs> I, I was like, how has this company stayed in business? I don't know anybody who's read them so that kind of failed but you and i were kind of chit-chatting about the dark horse based movies stuff either they produced or was yeah. based on their properties so we're going to kind of have a general conversation normal video night listeners will see there's two different styles for the show andrew and i usually pick a topic and we'll pick four or five movies and really do like a deeper discussion on them this one is kind of like the way i do it when guests come right. on is where we just kind of speed run through we'll, we'll we'll do some long stops on certain movies but it's kind of general conversation about the whole topic sure. of movies based on dark horse properties so i figured chronological order is the best way to go sure why not all right so it's it's funny that i'm getting this at the very end of the year i didn't realize it was their 30th anniversary until i was driving by the headquarters and i saw the big banner 30 years i was like oh shit that was a perfect opportunity <laughs> <laughs> oops and it's november so by the time this airs it'll be next year no. king. <laughs> So, Dark Horse Comics launched in 86, and their first movie was in 94, which in those days, that was actually kind of quick. Now it seems like every time a comic book's created, even before it hits print, it, they've showed it to a studio, they've optioned the rights, and you're like, I've never even heard of this. How is this a $60 million movie? Bulletproof Monk? What? <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. And it has no built-in audience. It seems kind of stupid in, in some ways to do that, but I think a lot of these companies had looked at Dark Horse Comics. Some of their titles that were optioned were kind of obscure. And in fact, I I don't think I've read really any of these actual comics. Have you? Ah, uh, yes. You gotta you gotta name the titles, and I'll tell you if I'm familiar or not. That sort of thing. Okay. So the very first Dark Horse production was through New Line Cinema, from the director of the magnificent, highly underrated The Blob, Chuck Russell, guided the mass to this massive, massive hit. Yeah. You're 40 minutes late. I'm sorry, Mr. Dickey. Stanley Yipkis was having one of those days. I have no money. I have no car. All I got is this, until he had a little change of face. Now, the Zero is a hero. Spoken! Jim Carrey is the mask. Somebody stop me! Rated PG-13. Starts Friday, July 29th at a theater near you. And finally, it legitimized Jim Carrey, because while Ace Ventura made a lot of money, I know critics hated it. Yeah. And as a, and a grown-up now, I now despise that first one. <laughs> yeah. I can't yeah. yes, sit yes, through yes. it. The second so, one's wait, better. Wait, wait, wait. So the Woo. Ace Ventura stuff... I, I being a, a tall, lanky, white guy who's kind of funny sometimes. I've been, Says you. I've, uh, <laughs> I've had that throughout my life. Even recently, comment about me being like Jim Carrey in some kind of way. Yeah. Yes, Ace Ventura was that for me for a moment, and I was like, yeah, I'm with it. And then the second one came out, and I was like, not really that with it. And then a few years between then and now, and now I'm like, no. 
<laughs> not at all with it. I feel like now Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, there's a, there's a class of his films. They were very commercial, very family friendly, but now as a grown up, you know, I'm almost 40 now, and I feel like he didn't find who he was until Cable Guy. Sure, Cable Guy is where he wanted to go. Yeah, The Mask allowed him, and, and of course the other previous hits, allowed him to make something. Well, The Mask is really subversive. The mask is actually really dark, yeah, but they true. couldn't get as dark as they did in the comic. The comic is gory, <laughs> violent, over violent, and I've only seen a few issues or guest appearances of The Mask in comics. I did hang out in the comic book store when I was 18 for like a whole year. So I, I was familiar with a bunch of stuff that we're going to be talking about. I just didn't really read a lot of them. No, well, you, you told me one. that most of what you read tended to be more of the international comics. There's international stuff, but there's one in particular later that one of the movies that was made on this list was a spinoff of or something. It's in the shared universe. Okay. So we'll, we'll get to that. So I have, yeah, I've definitely read The Mask. I, yeah, like you said, the energy is totally different. Part of it, of course, you feel like the movie was kind of molded in, in that direction. Once they cast Jim Carrey, they, they skew things a little bit more in his. Like yeah, certain, they did. Went, they went the Tex Avery route as opposed to the ultraviolet. Right, thing. which they actually went the old cartoons, which would benefit the families, right? Right. Well, you know, um, I you know, as I, I am, I am a, a huge cartoon fan, and Tex Avery is probably the most underrated artist in history. Still stunned that no one has ever released a collection of his stuff that he did with MGM. Hmm. I'm just uh, over in France, there's a bunch of collections so you have to get international release of his stuff but in america they're uh, just like ah tex avery he doesn't have any known characters so we're not going to sell it sure i mean except for a little red riding hood which you see you know the scene where jim carrey does the huge wolf yeah that's the big reference yeah. from that you know, there's the big how. It, it's it's the not howl. just Tex Avery though. It's about that uh, late '40s era where animation really started to get uh, subversive and wild and crazy. You know, Looney Tunes started surpassing the popularity of Disney. You know, Disney was trying to go for yeah. more realistic, whereas MGM and Warner Brothers were trying to go for the heavy comedy and stylized look. Yeah, impressionistic backgrounds and things. Right. Like this. Yeah, character designs that are just angles and strangeness. Yeah. yeah very good stuff and that era is heavy in this movie um especially the nightclub and of course there was there was other thing rising at the time i didn't know this but through you know looking it up i realized that people were getting into lounge lizard you know yeah zoot suit uh, stuff, sophisticated but... savage kind of style yeah zoot suit riot wasn't that on that soundtrack no i think that's from something else i don't think that was till three years later there's cuban pete of course everybody knows that one some of the stuff is of the moment it's funny how in my mind all the music feels like it's retro from the 40s it's either covers or it's the actual songs. Yeah. But I'm looking here, it's like Tony, 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 Escape. Really? Vanessa Williams. Wait, that was in The Mask. Yeah. Tony, Tony, Tony was in The Mask. Yeah. They sang a song called Bounce Around. <laughs> the very beginning of the Swinger Rat Pack era was The Mask. Yeah. So what was that yes, What was yes. that band, the swing band? Royal Crown there Review. There you go. They sang, hey, but you go. That's it. Royal Crown <laughs> and, Review. And we had Fishbone, which I can kind of see, you know, they had kind of a, a band jazz ska, uh, yeah, ska thing going Fishbone on with kind of like California punk. Uh, as a side note I knew the lead singer of Fishbone in passing for a while in Southern California I had this wow. beat up car there, it was a Nissan Sentra from 85 I got it from one of the guys at the comic book store he sold it to me for $200 because it was junk uh-huh. and it lasted me for about two and a half three years Wow! before it just died I mean the thing had problems the lights would turn off if I used the signal <laughs> 
right. I, I even got pulled over, and the guy was like, uh, are you drunk? I was like, no. Uh, I just turned. He used a signal, and the light's off. Sorry. So uh, he signed the roof of my car. Like, not just signed it like a, a little autograph, but I would have bands draw or write or whatever with Sharpie on the roof of my car because it was a turd. And he drew this really big, like his name, Angelo Moore. Huge with stripes. And he was working on it to the point where the Sharpie died. Uh. So, I mean, he was working on it for a long time and he was just hanging out at a show. Huh, did you, did you yeah. take a picture of this? Please tell me you have a picture of this. I do have a picture of it. Yeah, you gotta share it. I gotta see this. <laughs> You'll see it sometime. Okay. If I find it. Also is Brian Setzer Orchestra. So you got two guys that are about to, I would say about three years from now, three or four years is when they, they blow up. They're in the top 20. You know, they're, they're videos on yeah. uh, MTV. But it was a slow buildup with this culture. You know, it, it kind of hit its pinnacle around this time when Mask kind of showed it to a bigger audience and then Swingers. Yeah. Swingers really swingers tapped in. a year later, right? Yeah, and then uh, I think it kind of died off with, crap, what's the Brendan Fraser movie I love so much? Brendan Fraser, Unfrozen, Caveman Lawyer. No. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> Blast from the past, around that time when the swinger thing kind of died off. But for like six or seven years, it's just like what was cool in L.A. at the time for 20-something. Yeah, the 20 and 30, yeah. It, it's funny. The mask is supposed to be a reflection on a little bit of the 40s, but it kind of shows who we are in the early 90s. Yep, uh, yeah, it's actually an anomaly because what was happening in the early to mid-90s with Quentin Tarantino's work and Austin Powers was a love of stuff from the 60s and early 70s. Right. And so the mask and the swing kid era that's an anomaly of the 20 year rule yeah it's it's usually a 20 to 30 year rule the only thing i can think of is the fact that like kids like spielberg you know the ones that grew up in the 40s and 50s you know they were doing stuff like that in the 70s and 80s maybe the studio said well comic books are hot right now we have that art deco you know kind of look with you know dick tracy and batman and they're like well all these movies that kind of reflected on the 40s and 50s made money right except 1941 yeah. <laughs> sadly yeah, uh, yeah, yeah but you know that, that probably what green light applied Plus the fact no, that, that it totally cost, sounds like, right. It's it sounds why they did the mask that way. Plus, it wasn't that expensive in general, but for New Line Cinema, I still remember. I don't know why it was in Fangoria of all things, Fangoria, maybe because of Chuck Russell. And it had special effects makeup. Yeah, but they were, had the mask. They were talking about face. the fact that it was the most expensive thing that New Line Cinema had ever done, and I was like, well, how huh. much is it? Oh, only twenty three million? No, I don't think it was twenty three <laughs> million. I think it was more like seventeen million or something like that. And I was like, wow, wow that's well, of course. New Line Cinema, you know, basically surviving off of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Freddy money. And you can burn yeah. through that faster than you think. I guarantee you that you have a couple hits, but you don't have any others. You're gonna run through it. Right. Rose-colored glasses memory, I really enjoyed it, but I, I really don't think I ever want to watch The Mask ever again. I think I'd watch it, but it definitely is kind of a time capsule kind of movie where it doesn't... Uh, actually, you know, that's the only way that I, I watch movies like this is as a time capsule if I do. Not necessarily nostalgia, like I remember it fondly but like somewhat of an experiment to see what i think about yeah. it yeah well i mean the, the second movie in the whole dark horse 1994 thing is definitely of the era is time cop people magazine calls time cop clever and original is it the hottest thing or what suspenseful and fun with effects that will leave you breathless a breakthrough role for jean-claude van damme Time cop, rated R. I don't remember the comic book at all. I don't remember the comic book in any way whatsoever. When I heard that it was based on a property of theirs, I was like, uh, really? Okay. I've, I've never seen this available. I guess it was... To, to be honest, Time Cop sounds like it would be more like a dime store novel than it would be a comic. Right. And the movie plays like that. It's a fun movie. 
I mean, for what it was. And they they made two movies eventually. And a TV series. And that's a Van Damme movie and, and Peter Hyams yeah. and Van Damme. Well, you ever think about how many franchises Van Damme launched? Like that first chunk of his career, it's like almost every single movie had some sort of either a spinoff or a sequel. And you're just like, that's crazy. I don't know of any other actor that could pull that off. Mind you, he wasn't right. in any of those sequels except for Universal right. Soldier. But these low budget companies that were tied to him, they just made so much more. Like, I mean, I can't believe there's six kickboxers. <laughs> the six kickboxers should be the name of a movie. <laughs> all just kicking each other in the face the whole movie <laughs> yeah okay so time cop we got a mullet but not as bad of a mullet as hard target you got kind of like a no no that he's he's got a business mullet he's got the actual like he's going to work mullet. right hard target is greasy yeah out of work guy mullet olive oil noodle <laughs> hair <laughs> right so this is still like his biggest american hit i think it's shy of a couple million from being his biggest hit ever i think universal soldier made like two million more internationally but i can see why this is the one that most people went to a it's about timing on when it was released nothing was going on in september of 1994 except for time cop <laughs> so there was no competition it also was a story about a cop and everybody really liked time travel yeah we we still do actually with terminator and back to the futures and stuff like this yeah it's got time travel and being a cop and america loves cops or did at the time so and yeah cop movies at the time were just everywhere now it seems more like a directed video kind of or a TV kind of thing. Cop movies aren't made yeah. very much. It's usually about like these big epic battles with supernatural beings or superheroes. Time Cop also took advantage of the fact that, you know, digital effects were really starting to break through where you didn't have to do the morphing kind of stuff. You didn't have to create realistic looking creatures or anything like that, but you could do things like laser blasts that were done digitally. And, you know, like in this one, he opens up a wormhole, uh, stuff like that, you know. Yeah, and that's the bend thing, which is at the time comparable to the water thing in Stargate. Right. I think. Special effects wise. It was like, oh, they did something special effectsy that didn't offend my eyeballs. <laughs> and also the fact that I think this is the first time where he really had a strong relationship. It, it wasn't just, oh, I'm going to sleep with this girl. You know, the girl of the week kind of thing, which would be a lot in these action movies where I barely know you. We're going to sleep together. Oh, you're going to get shot at the end and I'm going to get your revenge or something like that. And that's all of Van Damme's earlier or most of his movies. And Right. Yeah, you're right. But this is the one where he's married. He's responsible you know he has a career he's not a guy on the run a lonesome you know like kind of whatever it is you know he wants to have a family he probably wants to be something more than just a cop it establishes the universe that it's lived in like there's there's something before and there's something afterwards right yeah there's it's actually very cinematic it's all because of the director really he knows how to work right his lens. peter hyams was very good i think he's the first director to really legitimize van damme you know making him more than just a guy who kicks you in the face yeah he gave him something to appeal to everybody and I, re I really wish that Sudden Death had done better because that's their second follow-up and it's not a perfect movie by any means but it's much better than what it you know like it just didn't do very well at the box office it didn't help that it opened up against that's like six other Die Hard in a hockey yeah stadium. I mean maybe it came a few years too late if it had come out in 93 maybe the Die Hard thing would have been a little fresher but you can see that him and Peter Hyams were very well together but it still isn't as good as Time Cop but I'm also saying that Time Cop hasn't aged exactly well right 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 and I love, what's, uh, you're seeing Heat Vision and Jack. Yes, I have seen Heat Vision and Jack. <laughs> there is a reference in there when the bad guy in Heat Vision and Jack and Time Cop is Ron Silver. Okay. But Heat Vision and Jack, he's playing himself. And there's these two guys that meet him and he goes, I'm Ron Silver. I just rented Time Cop. You are the bad guy in Time Cop. 
Yeah, well, acting is one of my more enjoyable diversions. <laughs> right. Old Ron Silver playing a bad guy as usual. Yeah, well, that's the kind of the 90s. They would grab a guy who would do well in these kind of stuff, and you could see as the career would diminish a little bit, like, oh, he'd have one big villain role and slowly get a little worse, like John Lithgow, just getting a little worse each time. <laughs> We'd have guys like that, and then they'd end up on TV and hopefully saving their career. Right. And there's not a whole lot I can say about Time Cop. I think it's strange that after all the times that I've seen it, the time thing still doesn't completely make sense to me. So yep. he has to. It's go, a time travel movie. Don't even goes, try. Don't he, unravel it. Don't no, try to make has, sense of it. He goes forward in the roller coaster kind of ride thing, and no, that, don't try to make. No, don't but, do it. All right. It's my, a time my, travel movie. Time travel what? movies can't make sense. But my brain will implode. I mean, I just. All mm-hmm. right. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, time Cop Two stuns me that he's not in it by the time they made time cop 2 he's no longer like the a he wasn't ever an a-lister i guess a b-lister and you know he wasn't commanding three or four million dollars a film i don't understand why universal didn't go to him and they went to jason scott lee instead i mean no nothing against jason probably scott lee. because he wanted more money maybe i don't know some actors i guess were like it's a sequel i'd actually deserve more i was like hold on you should be lucky you have a franchise still going yeah well maybe the script wasn't that good for him i actually liked the second one i liked the tv show as well sam raimi did a good job doing the tv show i thought so what's the next one so they have the mask and time cop okay so in a six month period we have three pretty solid productions from dark horse comics the final one of that is tank girl the odds of survival are a thousand to one and that's just the way she likes it hi my talented isn't she feeling a little inadequate tank girl which sadly did tank. Um, <laughs> but no I mean, pun intended or pun intended? Did it, you? It, it was pun intended. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> I'm all lazy. Right, right. It's, I think, the best of the three. In fact, it might be their best production. Hampered by the studio, though. I don't like that the studio was like, yeah, but no, you can't do that. In the middle of production, after they said, yes, you can do that. Yeah, that's stupid. That's you either really, see it through, unless ugh, it's a complete disaster. Unless a movie is a disaster and you're like, oh, we need to curb our costs because this is an F. But there's no way they th- could have seen this and said, oh, this is a disaster. Rachel Talele, I think she did a fine job with Freddy's Dead. I think yeah. Ghost in the Machine is such a blad nothing movie. I'm stunned that she was even involved because it doesn't have her signature on it. Sure. Uh, she, she brings a lot of heart and humor. Even to Freddy's Dead, there's more to it than the rest of the sequels, I think. Okay. But all of a sudden, Tank Girl comes out, and you're just like, this, this is exactly like the culmination of her talents. And, and the great cast, uh, great special effects. Stan Winston, the makeup is just uh, fantastic. Stunned that this movie didn't break out. I don't, maybe they just didn't know how to sell it? Yes, they didn't know how to sell it. It was not just a British comic. It was a comic that was serialized in a magazine and then compiled for the States into these editions, which made up actual issues or trade paperbacks, and it was pushed that way. It had a cult following over here. It did not at all have any kind of resonance with the people. It was about a punk rock chick and her kangaroo boyfriend and the tank that she drives around on and the adventures or misadventures that they have. And there's a fluidity to the plots. There's not a whole, always an actual adventure plot going on. There are little bits and pieces of things that you could piece together eventually to make a bigger story out of, but there's not usually a bigger story. Well, it, feel, it feels a little bit like the way... It kind of feels like the way they make road trip movies in, in, yeah, in that sense. Yeah, it's kind of 
that's how the comic or the strip was. It was just a bunch of like, let's almost stream of consciousness. There is actually one edition of it that's all psychedelia. So these guys were just messing around with whatever they wanted to mess around with. And they put it on page and paper and Philip Bond worked on it in the movie. And of course, Jamie Hewlett worked on it. And Alan Martin, they were all behind the scenes. They were on set. They were always working on this thing. And uh, the bits that had these big moments that the studio said, yes, these are great. Let's do it. They pulled out from under them and said, uh, no, just make an animation part. Which the animation part is pretty cool, but it was like the last second thing that they could do. Right. Yeah. I, and and you ultimately, to... it kind of hurts the movie that those animation parts come up because you're watching it and those animation parts go like, wait, is that it? <laughs> the one thing you can also take into consideration is by the time this was made and the next movie, which we'll discuss in a minute here, post-apocalyptic movies in this fashion were kind of passe. They were an 80s kind of thing, whereas the 90s seem to be more focused on dystopian. Yeah. Future, you know, like the Big crow. buildings, crumbled yeah. buildings, or, or just uh, darkness all over the place. And rain all the time. Semi Blade Runnery. I love maybe. the fact that you, whenever you watch these movies, it's always raining, and then you always see like these little things of flames shooting from the rooftops. I don't know why. Yeah, like, why is there flame coming out of that exhaust port? <laughs> oh, that or it's like these ultra compressities, like in Judge Dredd. Yeah. Now that's another movie that, that maybe did okay over here, but but didn't have. A following like they wanted it to. It was an international type movie. I don't. And has there ever been a, a successful movie based on an international comic, a European comic, or something like that? No. Like stateside, no. No, there hasn't. You know what's funny is the way that we were discussing Tank Girl is you were saying that it was an international comic first, and then Dark Horse bought the rights. Did they create anything of their own after that, like anything American based? Because I noticed that Dark Horse would do like the, the, the film Ita- adaptation. Yeah, they would do the Italian comics. You know, like Dylan Dog and. Stuff stuff like that but Dylan Dog yeah. isn't under here but I know for a fact that they did some collected editions of his stuff yeah they I, either Vertigo at the time or Dark Horse I'm not sure he did the adaptation of the movie and the artwork isn't right it's not correct it's not by anybody who worked on the film or anything it's just wrong yeah our next movie is Barb Wire Pamela Anderson Lee blasts onto the screen in the season's top sci-fi adventure, the action is non-stop. Let's go. Barbed Wire, rated R, now playing. Yeah, I, I can tell you honestly, I've never seen Barbed Wire. It's not good. Never was interested. Nope. Don't even bother. Okay, I do remember this. I do remember the opening sequence is her on a swing in the rain. <laughs> yeah. And the, Am I right? And speaking of, there's fireballs just shooting up everywhere off the floor because it's raining. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay, so what I remember of the movie, it's a Mad Max style movie where she constantly says, don't call me babe. She shoots people. Jack Noseworthy is in it. I love Jack Noseworthy. There's a big battle at the end where Steve Railsback goes full bonkers like he usually does. No problem with that i think the movie sucked total but well, i don't wait, recommend we it. forgot to mention who barbed wire is played by yes that's a big problem right there is pamela anderson there you go can't act they skewed the story i think to be her bubbly kind of character when the comic book i feel was different i read a couple issues of it uh not issues but okay it, it, i do rec- i do recall the comic book character is just a, a no-nonsense lady who quips every so yeah. often uh it was part of who kicks dudes 
whatever and shoot. Yeah, I don't think I actually read her standalone issues. I think if I remember correctly, there was an anthology series called Dark Horse Presents, uh, which would have four oh, stories yeah. per comic book, and I think that's where I read a couple of the stories. I thought they were okay, but nothing to make a movie about. Here's my problem with Barbed right. Wire, and this is kind of juvenile. Gramercy Pictures had the rights. So they decided in March, they have two movies on their slate. You know, some of these smaller companies, they could only afford to do movies in the spring and fall. You know, like the way Dimension had them. They can't compete in the summer and Christmas. So, they have Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, and they have Barbed Wire on their spring release list. They decide within a couple weeks of Mystery Science, you know, the release or whatever, they're sure. going to pull all ads. They're only going to release in like 300 screens, and that's it. It's bad enough that they destroyed the movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's actually another version. They did a whole like 90-minute movie, did it really cheap, really fast, and Gramercy said these jokes are too insider. They're not general audience friendly. You guys need to go rewrite this and reshoot it. So, oh, yeah, man. and they're like, we have another version, but Gramercy won't release that other version. So what you get is you get a 72-minute movie, which is fine. It's not great, but I've seen much better episodes. Right. And I'm in an empty theater. It's just me and my friends. And we're like, ugh, what could have been? And then Barbed Wire comes out and like, this better be worth it. This better be worth the whole thing. And you see Barbed Wire and you're like, oh, no, this is much, much worse. This is ridiculous that you can put any money in this at all. <laughs> the next one. Okay, fast forward. January 1999. It's been a few years since Dark Horse Comics had a movie in theaters. Yeah. It doesn't look good. Virus. It has traveled across time and space. An energy force unlike any in the universe. It is powerful, intelligent, and it has found the perfect planet to inhabit. I'm picking up a contact. 12 miles out, speed, zero knots. It's dead in the water, but it's big. It's really big. I don't get it. I mean, we got a Russian vessel, middle of nowhere, dead in the water, crew vanished. I mean, why the hell would they abandon ship, huh? We got somebody else on board. That's who sank the tug. Eight days ago, during a transmission from the Mir space station, something came onto the ship. I took control of computers. He was learning. Learning what? How to kill us. Now, in order to survive... It's creating a new life form. What? It wants us for spare parts. It must destroy the one threat... Oh, my God. ...to its existence. I'm gonna die! The virus called man. Was supposed to be a summer 98 film. And this happens a lot. Movies that are supposed to be released in August or late July, they're pushed. I, I don't, well, I don't know how they're pushed, what kind of projection aggregate they have to figure this out. Wait, wait, this genre thing won't work in the summer. It'll definitely work in it's January. It's always genre films, isn't it? Isn't always dump months seems to be filled with movies that are supposed to release in the summer? They're like sci fi, horror, or kind of like um, fantasy movies. And they're always like, oh, let's just dump it in January or February. Who cares? And Virus is one of those movies one that i was very very excited to see i don't know why I, I remember reading the comic books briefly which now on retrospect i think i confused virus with the thing sequel i don't know if you knew that they made a, a continuation of the movie the thing in a comic oh yeah form. yeah i think i have them confused but i was very excited plus i had just seen halloween h2o and i was crazy about that movie at the time i'm not so crazy about it now but i was like jimmy curtis in a horror movie with tons of special effects and 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 i was like well you got one of the baldwins i'm not 
not sure if that's the good Baldwin, but I got no real issues with that. <laughs> uh, Billy. Billy, ba- Billy Baldwin. Yeah, William Baldwin, no one really seems to have a problem with. He never really says much. He never gets in trouble. <laughs> but he's also never been really a A-lister. I mean, he had backdraft, of course, but then he did Fair Game and Sliver and ooh and ooh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he had that one moment and he didn't write it. He tried right. to, and it just didn't work so virus i'm in the theaters and i i tell you about a half hour into it i'm like i don't care about any of these people this right well okay so there's the problem there's a problem you have a movie that's interesting at least in concept where a beam of energy it's from outer space overtakes technology the energy is puppeting the technology and the technology merges with people to create sort of like automaton zombie peoples okay that's cool and all and you can do a lot of cool special effects which is why you were interested yeah that's the only reason why because back then you were younger like i was younger and we saw this stuff in fangoria or Starlog or something, and we're like, ooh, special effects, the guy's got a camera for an eye, you know? <laughs> well, I think subconsciously so, it's also, um, I was a huge Star Trek fan at the time, and I was like, ooh, kind of like a Borg sequel, but not. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, kind of like, yes, exactly, that's actually quite like a primitive Borg. And and also, I have to say, whenever I see Gail Ann Hurd's name, I get excited because I feel like she created a lot of great genre stuff. And I saw that it said from the producer of T2 and, you know, uh, the Terminator. I'm like, okay, okay, you got me. I'm sold. Right. And so she works with robot monsters a lot. Yeah, weird. Uh, but then you don't have compelling characters uh, in, in spite of the good actors. You just, you don't, look, I don't need the WB cast members to proliferate every movie. But you don't also need middle-aged people to be the only characters pretty much in your movie as well. Middle-aged being like over 30, really. Is that middle-aged? Oh my god, I'm, I'm, my life's half over! <laughs> <laughs> There was no scrappy young Matt Dillon like in uh, uh, No Escape, you know, to to be all sad about him dying. Right, right. There's no there's no charismatic, sy- there, there's no you know, sympathetic characters in this whatsoever. I feel like every actor they chose, except for Jamie Lee Curtis, was like down the list. All right, you know, like how uh, Cutthroat Island would like. All right, we got Matthew Modine. Will he say yes? You know that kind of thing. Like, who will say yes? To <laughs> will he say yes? Who can we get? B- <laughs> Billy said yeah. Billy Baldwin said yes. Michael Madsen said no. He's he's a Baldwin, so that's good. It's a name you can put Baldwin. Here's a problem. I think two things. John Bruno was a fine effects man. He did a great job creating the special effects. Yeah. The creatures look great, but he's not a director. This is what happens almost every single time when you find somebody who is a specialist in a certain field, you know, stunts, special effects, you know, something like that, and they've had no actual practice on a smaller film. You just throw this big, expensive beast at them. And almost every single time it fails. I don't understand this logic. Find somebody who's had a little bit of history, who knows how to operate a film. You work your way up. You start off in TV. You do a small movie. Then you work your way up to maybe a $10 million movie, a $20 million movie, a 50. You know, you don't automatically go, all right, you know how to do it. You know, Spiral Rosados, you know, stuff like that. It's like, oh yeah, we're just going to give you a $50 million movie. I'm good at special effects. Cool. (laughs) I don't know how to relate to people. Yeah, can't handle acting. But 
There's yeah, no and the other problem effect to cover up bad acting. Look at the writer. I have no ill will uh, towards Chuck Pafar. Pafar har har. I don't know how to say his name. But most of his movies are, if they're any good, it's because he wrote the outline and then someone else came in and fixed it. Like, oh, he's uh, a story. Right. He did Darkman, so he does the story, and then those guys, you know, worked with Sam Raimi or whatever to flesh it out. And I think there's a couple other writers in there. And then Hard Target was fleshed out. Now look at the movies he did by himself. He got the Jackal. He got Navy Seals. I think he did part of Quick and the Dead. Him and Sam Raimi must have got along. Yeah. But I really just don't think he's very good at getting characters. Except the one movie that he, I think he wrote by himself, which I actually quite like. You and I both like is Red Planet. Uh, I like Red Planet pretty much. Or I did for a long time. Now I'm, I'm kind of indifferent to it. But not for any bad reason. It's just time. Oh, you know what? He did not write that by himself. I'm looking at this right now. Jonathan Lemkin was the guy who cleaned it up. He wrote a bunch of movies that aren't that great. So. he wrote shooter devil's advocate lethal weapon 4 you know stuff like that showdown little tokyo it's just when the killer robot thing in red planet does that kung fu pose i'm annoyed (laughs) well and i'm like oh god (laughs) seriously yeah i know a little little robot dog monster i I have an affection for val kilmer i will say this i love watching val kilmer sure no that movie has a lot of great philosophical things to it and the acting is good and subdued for val kilmer who is known to be nutty on set it seems like he was being cool yeah, uh, yeah the movie has a lot of cool stuff to it but then that robot <laughs> the but virus is like that it has a, a talented people but they're just not lined up properly and I think a lot of it falls into a weak script and a director who doesn't know how to handle actors mm-hmm. most likely so 1999 does not start off well for Dark Horse it gets worse some people love this movie <laughs> I was so frustrated with the next movie and it's Mystery Men in a place called Champion City the forces of good and evil Captain Amazing, what a surprise are about to collide well we've always been each other's greatest nemesis nemesis now with the city's one true hero missing Captain Amazing is in danger Kaboom. who will step forward you again wannabes to answer the call of justice been waiting for this moment. The city's in peril, Lucille. All of their lives, but now that their time has come, I'm a superhero too. They're going to need all the help they can get. We gotta find a lot of superheroes really quickly. State your name and power. PMS Avenger. I only work four days a month. Is there a problem with that? No. No. I am the Waffler. Waffle Man! Am I too late to try out? Sorry. <laughs> You're in. Wow, my first mission and we're gonna rescue Captain Amazing. Universal Pictures presents... We need to talk about your plans. I'm going to kill you. Right, that's the part that really doesn't work for me. A new league of heroes that step to a different beat. Well, I am a ticking time bomb of fury. I don't find you threatening at all. (laughs) We're not your classic heroes. We're the other guys. Mystery Men. I'm invisible! Can you see me? Yes. Wow. Maybe you should put some shorts on or something if you want to keep fighting evil today. Mystery Men. Oh, gosh. Again, another expensive movie with a guy who doesn't have any film feature experience. No, but he has a lot of visual visual commercials under his belt. He was a commercial director and he knows how to handle visuals. And that's why they did it. 
but can um, he handle actors? It seems to be that he wasn't really doing the actor directing, more like Ben Stiller probably was, or his his crew was just doing the let's do it this way. You know, I comedy. hear stories about that, that there are actors who have enough power and then they will get a guy to handle the technical stuff. Kurt Russell apparently is the actual director of Tombstone, but yeah. he wasn't allowed to take credit because Co- Cosmatos, George Cosmatos is responsible for the technical aspect of the direction but yeah the actor's director is Kurt Russell on that now Stallone yes, would hire Cosmatos so, uh, earlier he did for Cobra and uh, Rambo but apparently Stallone was the yeah. actual director on those two movies if you look at the movies that Cosmatos did on his own compared to the ones attached to huge stars wildly different of unknown origin I think that's the name yeah. of it, the one with the giant right. rat Peter Weller that has a different vibe than the other two movies he also did Leviathan which he did with Peter Weller totally different flavor and Shadow Conspiracy so that's that he he had his movies on his own are so different these big uh, action films right I think you're right I think Kinka Usher is a guy who handled the technical stuff it is late 90s comic book movie style right a lot of improv lots of improv that's what frustrated me now uh them used to improv maybe i'd be okay with it um i have to revisit it but at the time i was so annoyed oh i was cool with it because i was a ben stiller camp you know i watched the ben stiller show so he has janine garofalo from that and they reprised their whole why don't you tell me argument style thing and i always found that and i still do find that funny that's the part where i gave up on the movie i did <laughs> not i was just like forget it forget this this is terrible and for some reason, I was really turned off by Paul Rubin's character. I mean, I know he's supposed to be gross anyway, but I was just like, yeah, this is stupid so and juvenile. The thing is based on a comic called Mystery Men, and they're about a bunch of uh, misfits, right? Yeah. That it's like the C-grade or D-grade Avengers or something. They're like, well, they're the Defenders. I don't know if you remember the Defenders during the 80s. They're like, who's not on a team? We can use them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's what this was. And living in Southern California for as long as I did, I came across certain actors people who were actors and they told me their tales sometimes one of them was named turtle aka james vincent turtle was in dude where's my car yeah dude where's my car i recognized him from that and he's playing in a band and i was like you're lead singer guy why do i know his face and that's why so he was up for the invisible boy and he lost out to kel mitchell because most likely Kel Mitchell fit a demographic because that movie had zero black people in it. Yeah. And James Vincent is an Italian dude. <laughs> He's just a strange, funny Italian dude. And he lost out also to the movie The Core. Oh, right, right. The DJ Qualls. DJ, yeah. He lost out to him because he didn't fit what they were looking for. So I keep thinking that it would have been better with Turtle because I know how Turtle's humor is and watching Mystery Men and Kel Mitchell do it. Kel Mitchell played it really innocent and naive, but it just didn't seem natural. It didn't seem legitimate. Whereas Ben Stiller's character is played like bold and broad, but I get it and I believe him. I just didn't ever believe Kel Mitchell. And I believed the shoveler. I even believed the blue Raja. I've seen this movie a bunch. (laughs) (laughs) The blue Raja. I, I, I don't necessarily like the blue Raja and I still don't get his jokes. Because they're so obscure. And that's the joke, is that they're so obscure. So I get that one joke, (laughs) but I don't actually get his jokes. 
or his references. But there's something wrong with the film. I don't... The cohesiveness. I just feel like there's too much that's not being reined in. Here's what's wrong with it. It looks and feels like a Joel Schumacher <laughs> Bat movie. Oh, do you get this with Escape from L.A.? Like, you feel a little bit of the Schumacher flavor? Like, why are those weird color lights in the background? Mm-hmm. That doesn't give it texture. It just looks weird. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, Escape from yeah. L.A. was... I feel like I should watch Mystery Men again. I know people love this movie. And I may not like it again, but there's movies like that. There's comedies that are super specific to a Mm -hmm. certain audience. I love Cabin Boy with unwavering praise. I know people who think that's the worst it's not, piece of crap in your It's not, but it's it's just so wrong. It's so weird. <laughs> just love and it, so it's much. like no. Hey, Tim Burton was supposed to do Cabin <laughs> Boy and he didn't, and that's the right. reason why it is the way it is because it's like half of his pre-production and then they just cobbled together the rest. Right from Resnick's uh, idea, but uh, Mystery Man, I'm not gonna say it's not. No, it is. It out. is. It's um, also I an anomaly, but just... it feels like and looks like Batman movie by Schumacher. I, that yeah, is funny. I think the weirdest thing about this movie is the most memorable thing is the movie's video with Smash Mouth, yeah. and you have like Ben Stiller on the car smash and they're like mm-hmm. I mean it's, that's kind of in the movie too but uh, it would interlace and I remember seeing that video like 10,000 times yep. I still love Smash Mouth I know people give me grief for no, it no that song look love look, it. I'm going on record right now that song is a good song people might not like his voice Thank and you. that guy doesn't necessarily have a strong singing voice but doesn't matter no the song is fine so is Walking on the Sun so is uh, like at least half of that album I don't care it's fine it's good that song you yeah. get it in your head it's an earworm it's fine I don't know it's, why you it's a here's what people may not remember about from like 96 to about 2001 the world seemed kind of happy huh? just there, a bit. It, it seemed like the movies the videos the music it was up it was positive and all of a sudden around 2002 2000 people were like oh, no we can't have that anymore you're too happy you oh screw that. yeah that's because of a, a big old thing that happened in 2001 oh well there's that okay you're right i forgot i feel like a jerk for you no don't you're just observing but, but it does the you're wor- observing a cultural thing that happened don't feel bad about it but i also think it was a little bit before that i think people were mad about the boy bands i think they were mad about this up happy because there's always these grumps that want to bring it down oh this is just bubblegum pop Mm -hmm. this doesn't matter but i don't know if you remember or not but the 1960s were filled with like these bright lively colors and happy songs right of course another travesty came through and kind of brought that down but i still think that people look down that kind of stuff i don't think there's i think there's a huge chunk of this population that doesn't Want hey, I, I agree with you. I agree. And I've been kind of a bummer, but you know, I look back, I love the monk. I love <laughs> those. As silly as they are, I like the in like flint. I like the lively colors. They're so bright and happy. And, and that's how I feel about the late 90s. I have no problems with Third Eye Blind, Smash Mouth. And even though I wasn't a huge boy band guy, I get it. I get the yeah. appeal. And I have no problems with it. When people have 90s nostalgia, yeah. you know? Go! Go is a great movie that melded both yeah, the, the go dark was good. Uh, go side was good. and the fast uh, light side. Yeah, go. Yeah. I agree with that too. So we bring next to 2000, G-Men from Hell. Two hardened government agents, wrongly set up, are murdered and sent to hell. This is the place the names we're talking about. Now they're about to steal a second chance at life from the devil himself. All we gotta do is get back on an earthly plane and do a couple of good deeds. What the hell are you doing in my tub? 
first thing we do. Set up a PI business. I'd like to hire you. Have you seen these two men? We ain't going back. You're still alive. Who is? Our G-Man. I will personally drag your bones back to... Starring William Forsythe, Tate Donovan, Bobcat Goldthwait, Paul Rodriguez, Gary Busey, and Robert Goulet as the devil. Look, pal, it's not like you think. Okay. G-Men from hell. Bodies falling from heaven. Actually, we're from hell. And this is the thing that I know. Yo, yeah, and... This is the thing that I really read as far as comics go. Really? I didn't know you actually read it. I think you're talking like when you sometimes when they say they, they you know, I could read that is like, you know, you understood the depth of the movie. It really meant okay, something. Okay, the very you. first incarnation of the G-Men from Hell, I wasn't aware of. But I read Madman Comics and they are in Madman Comics. This is the shared universe. A-pop comics. So- shared universe it eventually became a pop with the atomics and madman and there's these two characters mike mattress and dean crept who are corrupt who's fbi guy whose last name who, is mattress seriously is there anybody in this universe with the last name mattress i don't know <laughs> i have no idea but i'll tell you that that mike allred is a is a nutty character i mean he you look at him he's just a normal guy but his tastes are strange he's he's into the 50s and early 60s kitsch and he's into psychedelia and uh he actually started to inform some of my taste not all of it because uh my taste in movies and b movies and all that stuff was born out of the early 90s when i first saw not mst3k but something before that called it came from hollywood with the cast of SNL throughout the years, doing little vignettes, talking about is that good? Movie I've, trailers. I've only and, yeah, do, I like do it. You it's remember actually on YouTube. The giant. Find it on YouTube. You can watch. Oh, it. good. Do you remember the giant movie guides that you would get? Well, maybe you wouldn't get, but I got them every single year. They're like 400 pages. It's like the video movie guide, and it give you like short reviews and tell you yeah. whether it was worth watching or not. Even had a little logo of a turkey next to it if it was not worth watching. Okay. I read the first few like backwards and forwards, the whole thing, just uh, non. So I was reading it, and I always came along like that stop. Like it came from Hollywood. The guys from Saturn Live. Why have I never heard of this? And I still, to this day, until you mentioned it, I didn't know it was even available in any form. I thought it was like a TV yeah, special yeah, or know, something. It's, it re- is where I learned of Ed Wood. It's where I learned of Robot Monster. It's where I learned of all these schlocky, dumb things that I have affection for, against my better judgment, really. <laughs> but that sort of thing. And Mike Allred's work with Madman. It's my favorite comic book character. I sadly don't read it anymore, but I mean, maybe not sadly. I have too much to do. Still, I like Madman a lot, and I would love to see a proper Madman movie made. But this is as close as we can get. Yeah, these they, two side characters so, who pop up in the Madman story. This is their tale. Yeah, there's so many times that Robert Rodriguez got close to financing, and it would just fall through. And I think someone else was attached for a little while, and I haven't heard a word in a decade or more. Now this movie, G-Men from Hell, has a title that just cannot be sold. <laughs> you can't give this title away to you. G-Men from Hell. What? No. I don't want to watch that. Gay Men that's from stupid. Hell? That's just offensive. No, that's not what... You, you don't know the word G-Men means. Sorry, it's an old phrase. <laughs> yeah, a government man. It, it just can't be sold. E- either way, it sounds corny or whatever. And then the From Hell thing, no. Nobody wants to watch it. But this movie is directed by a Coppola. The most rebellious Coppola of Chris. Chris Coppola. Little Chris Coppola. When I first watched this movie, I couldn't stand it. I bought it, and I couldn't stand it. It just, like, was, no. No, this is awful. But for some reason, when I revisited it over the last week, I really quite enjoy it. And I 
think it's in a Batman 66 kind of way. Yeah, definitely. It has a very specific voice. It has a tone, which a lot of these superhero movies, the only tone I see if it's very specific vision is dark and depressing. This one, it's a, a pop culture vision, but it's skewed so narrow into what exactly it wants to be. I give much respect to the director by sticking to that vision when he could have, like, well, it'd be more appealing, we'd probably get more investors and more money and a better release if I did this, you know? Sure. Now, it is set in around, like, 2000, 1999, 2000. It is set, but they don't have uh, too much technology that gives that away. It's just a couple of uh, lines here and there or whatever. But the set decoration and the, the musical score for the most part, except for the very last song, which is over the credits, is good. But this cast is kind of insane. It's a BC list cast of like all the names. Like everybody. Everybody that was, their career was either it barely took off or they were on the downside of their career. But here is something that's interesting. It's kind of normal now to see these movies on Netflix where you see like 10 names you know. Like guys who may have had a hit a few years ago. You know, you know the, the kind of the peripheral. They're no longer A or B listers, but they're C listers or TV guys. That's kind of normal now. This is a little more of a fresh idea to get this many names. You're like, how did they afford this movie? Because clearly the budget must have been at most. Two million dollars at most. At most. Uh, but yeah, the, the movie doesn't look like it's uh, a bunch of money. Right. <laughs> it doesn't. That's what I actually my memory of it before I watched it again. Oh. Was how cheap it looked to me. Here. But now actually I think they used what they did very well. Yeah. But I'll, there, there's the a part. continuation of that idea. I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. But uh, to finish up what I was saying, there's a company called MPCA, mostly known for doing Dumb and Dumber years later. But when they first started around 87 to about 91, they would make these movies, very low budget action movies, but they would have tons of names in them. You're like, how did they do this? And the format was they would just hire the one guy, you know, like Jan, Jan Michael, Michael Vincent, Vincent, guys like that, or George Kenny, guys that could sell on video, but not necessarily theatrical. But get enough of those names together, it gets people's attention. And they would just hire them for one day, you know, pay like $10,000. They'd have them the whole eight hours or whatever, shoot all their scenes that way. And then they would, you know, flip the camera around for the other guy and just, you know, cut. They would never really have them together. That's the way they make movies like uh, G-Men from Hell is they'll bring uh, Gary Busey in for a day, Zach Galligan in for a day, shoot all that stuff at once and then move on. It saves uh, uh, on, you know, like the contracts, the Actors Guild kind of costs um, for the middle. All right. That's, that's actually interesting. So the cast starts with William Forsyth and Tate Donovan. Then Carrie Wurr, Vanessa Angel, you can take it away. Paul Rodriguez, Gary Busey, Zach Galligan, not Mel Torme. Crap, what's his name? He was in... Uh, Goulet! Robert Goulet! <laughs> Goulet! And a couple others, like character actors, whatever. And for the most part, you're just... You, the two guys that are the main focus, you know, they just interact with the characters. Oh, Bobcat Bobcat, I love Bobcat. You know, that's... Oh, wait, wait, what? wait. One more. Who are we forgetting? Charles Fleischer. Oh, right. Roger Rabbit, Charlie Fleischer. Uh, and I met him, too. Really? Do tell. Okay, so the character he plays in this has a puppet on his hand who seems to be sentient. So he is almost a mute, but he's also providing the voice of the puppet. And he's just like this dim-witted guy with shaggy hair and a puppet that does all the talking. When I met him, it was after this movie was made, but I was at a venue for a band, Phantom Planet, and he knew some people in the band and his daughter knew them. And I was there. Well, they're part. Not- the lead singer is part of the Coppola family. Yeah, I was there not with 
but I had met and I was standing next to and I was talking to Diva Zappa. Okay. And he walks over to Diva Zappa and he's he's just a strange guy. He's very strange. He has with him a bunch of markers. Has a what, bunch of what? Markers. Okay. And he's talking about how wonderful these markers are. And he's showing Diva Zappa these markers. They're, they're at a rock show in between bands. And he's just like, these markers are wonderful. They, they're the greatest markers. Here, look. And he pulls a bunch of markers out. Okay. <laughs> Have you met my daughter? Here's my markers. It was just the weirdest thing. And I'm like, that's Roger Rabbit. And he's being weird. <laughs> okay. I guess I guess that's, uh, that's a thing. That's... that's I've got a few other stories like that, too, down the pipe. Great. <laughs> I have no stories at all. I have, like, hardly anything. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> oh, I have one other weird story, but I'll save it for later. Okay. Uh, the uh, one thing I'll say about this, yeah. there is a video where William Forsyth is being interviewed about G-Men from Hell at a convention, and he said that there was huge issues with the technical union. I don't even know what you call those unions. You know the guys that do the, the boom work, camera work, whatever, those guys. Okay. Uh, there was a huge problem, and they had to shut down production, but, you know, there's a time limit on when he has the actors and a time limit on the budget so William Forsyth said that he hired some porn people to come in and finish shooting the film and that might be why it looks like crap oh geez the movie's full of Dutch angles and strangeness and the, yeah there are some very standard camera angles <laughs> towards the end of the movie actually if they shot this chronologically yeah then can you imagine when all make... those people show up on set and he's like I don't I don't need a fluffer why are you here go away <laughs> <laughs> no 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 it's not this type of movie <laughs> Jeez. I thought this was a Gonzo film. <laughs> oh, the G- no! I thought this was called the G Spot from Hell. No, but I do like <laughs> this movie. It's the only thing that we have from the Madman universe at all on film. I mean, I really want to see a Madman movie, but I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. Christopher Coppola, after this, only did two more movies. At the Monterey Film Festival, they were promoting the crap out of the fact that he was going to be there, uh, showing the Creature of the Sunnyside trailer park, and it showed once and never again. I guess he was so embarrassed by it. They, I guess they ruined the film and they're like, oh, collected insurance or something. I don't know. I don't know if it's out there somewhere, but it has never been on video or TV. So uh, huh. whoever's at that film festival, lucky. Uh, he did another one called Big Bad Voodoo Mama, which um, I that's a little close to Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. Right, right. I've never <laughs> so heard I don't of know either. If that's, no, it, it hasn't been, I don't think it's been released either. I can't find any history. I know that, that he does roles all. in Uwe Boll movies. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, he, he, he just stars as a side character. Yeah. All right, so 2003 brings us to American Splendor. Here's me, all grown up and going nowhere. I'm not doing as great as you think. I gotta get out of here. <laughs> My second wife divorced me. I work a dead-end job as a file clerk. So if you're the kind of person looking for some fantasy figure to save the day, guess what? You got the wrong movie. In the early 60s, I met this shy retiring cat from Philadelphia. Meet my buddy, Bob Crump. You should see his comics. I could write comic book stories that are different from anything that's being done. This is great stuff. Can I illustrate them? These are all about you? Yeah. You turn yourself into a comic hero. Ordinary life is pretty complex stuff. What happened to the new American Splendor? I think we sold them. Why does everything in my life have to be such a complicated disaster? I think you and I got a lot in common. I don't really know what to expect. The way Crumb draws you, you have all these wavy, stinky lines. Those are motion lines. I'm an active guy. Hey, are you Joyce? Hey, Harvey. She might as well know right off the bat I had a vasectomy. I have all these food allergies, self-diagnosed anemic degenerative illness. Wow, you're a sick woman. Not yet, but I expect to be. Ladies and gentlemen, give a warm welcome to Harvey Picard. You're Harvey Picard. You're famous. 
Son, you done good. You are living the American dream. I never felt more like a sellout hack in my life. You should try believing in something bigger than yourself. It might cheer you up. What do we seem depressed? Uh, American Splendor, fantastic film. I think it's the one that really brought Paul Giamatti to the forefront. Well, it's a, it's actually it's a legitimate drama biopic about Harvey Pekar, and it's yes. Yeah, it's probably the most respectable of any movie that they've ever done. It's the most respected, and it seems like, I don't even know how they did American Splendor. It seems like uh, Fantagraphics would have done something more like that. Definitely. I don't remember ever seeing American Splendor in print by Dark Horse. Well, Harvey Picar was the kind of guy that floated from labels a lot. There's some creators out there that they own something, but they're constantly floating between whoever will pick them up. Like, you look at the Rocketeer. Well, actually, that's Madman. Madman went from Tundra to... Right. to Dark Horse, to Image, to its own thing with A-pop comics. So I wouldn't say that American Splendor, it kind of doesn't count because its identity isn't really found with Dark Horse comics. It just landed with them and then they produced it. Right, and, and a lot of the rest of their catalog is kind of littered with stuff that, uh, well, at the time you had it, you know, the guy who owns the rights, he moved on. Oh, hey, what about Star Wars? Hey, what about Star Wars? It's <laughs> a Dark Horse thing, isn't it? Star Wars you know, is a rare, rare Dark Horse thing right the meat and it's potatoes of dark horse comics has always been the licenses that's what's kept them going the aliens versus predator which is part of this list but i don't really want to talk about it unless we talk about yeah, all yeah, the aliens movies it. you know that's that's a license they got you know they, they would license certain they had the shadow for a while wait they, they you're had... saying that star wars isn't a dark horse comic <laughs> well it started off as a marvel comic first but you know and they did great things with star wars they did great things with buffy and angel and stuff like that you know um but they're all licenses they're right. not Right. It's not really their property to say it's a dark horse. That's thing. more like an actual comic book spinoff or something. Right. But, you know, they would try certain experiments. There's one creation of theirs that I hold near and dear to my heart, even though it's really dark and weird, is Grendel. I don't know if they'll ever make that into a movie. I also really like Ghost. I don't know if you've ever seen that. That's a dark horse creation. They have some original Grendel, stuff. Grendel, Ghost, and Mage. Oh, the Mage. I totally forgot about Mage. Uh, Goon is great. They have properties out there they could exploit. And I don't understand why. Yeah, but those, I think Mage is one that floated and i think grendel floated too right so both, these are like creator owned things and they float well, like yeah both are from uh originally were i think with comico they came over to dark horse because of matt wagner signed a license for a little while with them i don't know if they're still over there ghost i think is 100 dark horses um goon i think is all theirs um eric powell is doing some great stuff over at dark horse dark horse was actually in dire straits i believe around 2010 their licenses weren't pulling in the kind of money they should have considering the cost going out to get the license and their creator own stuff was not taking off they're basically surviving on the fumes of star wars and buffy at the time i think now they know that they've lost the rights to star wars to marvel and they'll probably lose the rights to some other stuff they really focused on embracing creators like mike mignola and eric powell stuff like that guys who can create yeah the hellboy stuff and i think dark horse has created a lot of the darker universe kind of stuff you know they don't when they tried doing superhero stuff with uh world's greatest comics and failed horribly licensing i don't I, there's a lot of companies that just do licensing and i don't really see as they have an identity you know tops comics they just did licensing and they died they filtered you know there's a lot of guys like that now they'll pick up something known and they'll do a series it's cool because you do have a built-in audience but what do you do after you lose that license you look for another one yeah so it's the, the the last decade or so of dark horse 
It's been a lot more successful, but uh, the creativity of that first decade, I think, is gone. It's more about massive franchises, known properties. Uh, we have, of course, Hellboy being kind of the tail end of that. This is unique. This is something that's never really been done before, and it's a great film. I don't hold the two Hellboy movies up in, like, my A-list. They're they're good on like you you know the Saturday afternoon. There's nothing else. Yeah, on yeah, but they they're this. like their effects are really solid. That's that's the they stuff. They are, that and I know people it. who worship these movies. My sister absolutely adores the two movies, and I don't. And um, I always feel like I'm like, is there something wrong? With no, me that no, I no, 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 no. The, the one of the reasons why you don't really, I, I'm telling you everything about you. I know everything about you, Michael. Oh no! It's the music. Think about it. It's underwhelming. It's not overwhelming. It's not swashbuckling. It's underwhelming. It undercuts every scene of excitement in that film. It's just boring. Indiana Jones, dun da da dun da dun da da You have something to hold on to as a theme for every major character, everything that happens. You have that. Same with right. the Star Wars thing and whatever. And you don't even need to be John Williams. I do not tout John Williams. But I love Bruce Broughton, Alan Silvestri, uh, Basil Palidoris. All right, all right. You want, though, a theme a Hellboy theme, something that rings true for the character, doesn't play hokey, but it enhances the scene. Yeah. And that movie doesn't have it. And neither of those movies have it. Well, here's my problem with the first movie is um, repetitious with the same villain. And two, they felt the need to introduce the doll bland white guy as the lead as your entry into that world when it's not necessary. The second movie is infinitely better because A, you have built the universe already, but B... And you don't have that guy. Yeah, you don't have that guy. And the villains are, I think, I just think they're better. It's kind of like the way it is with Blade. Oh, just normal everyday vampires. Lots of them, but you know, the same thing over and over. It's the second movie when they start expanding the universe the idea of what oh well now it's like super vampire leech kind of guys against normal vampires it's, it's a little more creativity plus Guillermo del Toro has a better eye for stuff than I, I say Stephen Norrington I know I think you like Stephen Norrington but I'm not a fan I do like Stephen Norrington but there's a movie that he did called The Last Minute which actually shows you what he can really do really I didn't I never heard of that one I had thought he hadn't directed anything since he did that league before League, League and then left oh okay after Hellboy, we got terrible sequel to Son of the Mask. <laughs> so bad. Uh, Aliens vs. Predator. Urgh, so bad, but the cast is good. I like the cast. Sin City. Um, I'm okay with it. I have no problem. All right, yeah, Sin City stuff. N- neither of them are bad. No, uh, I don't really care for the second one as much, but it's still better than it. its reception was so cold. I'm like, whoa. What? It was look. It was too little, too late type of thing as far as timing goes, and that's yeah, the only real of... problem with it. If it came out five years prior, whatever. Right. Like, it's if it the came same out thing. Two years after the original, it would have been well accepted. Right. It's the other thing is 300. Uh, the sequel was so much later and it got kind of a, it did okay, but it didn't do great. I like 300 now, but I don't like what 300 did to action sequences. It's the sure. same thing. It's the same thing with Matrix. Every time a revolutionary look or style to filming things, all of a sudden yep. everybody copies it and you're like, oh, I'm so sick of wire stunts. I'm so sick of slow-mo and uh, bullet time. Bullet time. Thank you. I can't stand that anymore. And the, the thing with 300 did was this speed up, slow down, speed up, slow down, speed up, slow down. And I'm like, I'm and that you know that was pioneered in basketball commercials. Really? Yeah, Nike basketball commercials. Oh, I didn't know that. But it also, I would love it if he would do a movie that wasn't so bleak, so dark. I really hope that Justice League, and I don't have a good feeling about it, is a change in his constant bleak, dystopian look. Well, he did Guardians of Gaul. I've never seen that. I have no idea. Is that, it is, is that about anything? owls. Oh, okay. 
great. Owls in the forest flying around. <laughs> Guardians of Gaul. If it's anywhere nearly as haunting as the owl in Secret of Nim, I'm in. Uh, it's just Guardians of Gaul. All right, final it film. Is, it, final yeah. film from Dark Horse that I want to discuss that's not a sequel is R.I.P.D. Everybody hates oh, this movie. Yeah, you mean Ghostbusters. Uh, I, I like or, it, though. No, it's Men in Black just with monsters. Men in Ghostbusters. Oh, that's what you said. Okay. Um, I don't have a huge problem with R.I.P.D., but the special effects are very strange. Uh, ultra cartoony, I would feel. I think that the cast does well, except so apparently this is true grit. Uh, Jeff Bridges has decided to talk like Dish or Charm. Yeah, yeah, like he's Barbara got Chaw on his chin. Did something happen to him? Because I haven't seen a different performance out of him. It's just Arbor's Chaw. I don't know. Chewing tobacco. I don't know. He's chomping on a uh, piece of leather. I, don't, I have no idea. <laughs> so the problem with that movie to me is that I'm no longer 14 years old. That is, that's a, a solid assessment. It is meant for like teenagers who haven't experienced movies before. Apparently, I've never heard of Men in Black. I'll go see this because it really is a retread of what I said. It's got elements of Ghostbusters and definitely major swaths of Men in Black. Right. So who is the director on this uh, one? Look, I'm, I don't, I don't remember, Schwanky. but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna totally poop it on it. It's a thing that it's, it's not Aaron Eckert, Frankenstein. Oh my God! Why did oh that movie so terrible? Frankenstein Unbound, so Unborn. Uh, Frankenstein, I'm hot and hip. <laughs> Frankenstein. Frankenstein hipster. <laughs> Frankenstein the Gap model. <laughs> so like, it's uh, not like that kind of bad. It is just. I'm not that age anymore that that appeals to me. It's because I have seen it, things quite like it. Oh, wow. Hey, can I tell you something real quick? The guy who wrote this, he is known for doing Demolition Man's son-in-law, or Universal Soldier 2 and 3, the TV movies. Demolition Man's son-in-law? No, yeah. (laughs) Is that one movie? Hey, party on, dudes. Go get some Taco Bell. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the biggest sign of the the same energy that's in R.I.P.D. is in this movie here. Ballistic, X versus Sever, because we clearly give a shit about X and Sever. <laughs> Who are they? Should have just been Spy yeah, versus it's, Spy. It's, that's what the concept was, and then they... <laughs> yeah, with tons of stuff blowing up. There's no actual plot. Uh, it is not well-directed either. All right, so that brings us to the end of this episode. It's kind of important for me, A, because I'm a big comic book fan, but two, I'm an Oregonian, and Dark Horse Comics is just a big part of Portland. Um, okay, technically it's in Milwaukee, but it's just like right next to Portland. So it's like, you know, a bus trip, you're fine. Five minutes, woo! That and Oni Press, comic books are huge up here, but Dark Horse is the one that has been solid. During an age when independent comic book companies were dropping like flies because either they didn't have the right properties or original creations, or they spent all their time on gimmicks. You know, oh, great story. No, let's just focus on hip art. You know, something like that, or die cut covers, you know, glow in the dark, stuff like that. A lot of these companies just fell apart. Even Marvel went bankrupt. Dark Horse somehow stayed on course, and after all this time, still going strong. Michael? Yes? I think you're just trying to get a swag bag from them. I am! (laughs) Did I ever tell you about the time I went in and asked about an internship? And they're like, that's only for college students. And I'm like, you're being judgmental. I look like I'm in my 30s. I can still be a student! (laughs) You go in, you're Rodney Dangerfield, you're like, I like these comics! (laughs) 
Uh, I need an internship. Yeah. Hey, no respect. Ho, ho. There you go. Yeah, it's it's kind of important to Oregon, especially since I love the fact that I used to live like two blocks away from Dark Horse, and it takes up all of Main Street. I mean, it's huge for oh. what seems like a small company. It's like building after building after building is Dark Horse Comics, and it's just it's the heart of that town that I lived in. Oh wow. Well, maybe you can move back one day. I wish I could. On that note, everybody. That's all, folks. See I didn't later. know how to end. Bye bye. <laughs> Check you later, Bill and Ted. I'll see you Olive oil noodle hair. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>